Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 52. Today I'll be taking over from Matt Lensink as your host to talk to a special guest we have brought onto the show, Mr. Stephen Law from Resilient World Institute. But before we introduce Stephen, I wanted to introduce my co-host today who happens to be another Lensink. Welcome, Martin. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you, Lisa. Excited to interview Stephen today. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Um, Martin has spoken to me very highly of you, and uh, so it's an honor to have you on Energy Radio. Uh, Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Excellent. Well, we normally start this off by uh, essentially asking our guests for a bit of a background in terms of you know, what did you study? How did you get here? Uh, you know, you're an instru- instructor with uh, the Resilient World Institute. Can you give us a bit of an understanding of uh, how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. Um, the only one thing that I must uh, upfront uh, declare is that although I'm representing myself today as an instructor of Resilient World, uh, for legal purposes, I'm, I'm obligated to declare that I'm also a civil servant And I work for the Ontario Ministry of the Environment, Conservation and Parks, although I am not representing the Ministry of the Environment, Conservation and Parks here today. So I'm speaking independently, again, as as an instructor of Resilient World, which, again, is a a separate uh, what I call corporate identity from my primary work as, again, as a civil servant and engineering specialist in the Ontario government. Okay. Sounds good and no problem. So, um, so anyway, did, did you want me to uh, sort of jump into that sort of background item that you had asked about with the, uh, you know, yeah. kind of, yeah, okay, yeah. great. So, so anyway, like I say, just like a lot of engineers, I <laughs> this I didn't come to this by accident. Um, you know, p- engineers are a kind, mostly anyway, in my experience, like myself, are kind of a different breed of individual. Um, almost like we're kind of born for this, right? Like we don't choose engineering, engineering chooses us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So like I say, just like a lot of engineers, you know, when I was going through high school, I really excelled in math and science and all that kind of fun stuff. And it's like, oh, well, what can I do for a job, you know, where I get to do a math and science? And it's like, oh, you know, how about engineering? That looks like fun. Um, So I went to study uh, engineering at the University of Guelph after I graduated from high school. And, um, you know, in some of the other questions that we that we discussed before the program, I'll get into I'll get into my my real personal background here in just a moment. But I specifically studied environmental engineering at the University of Guelph because of, again, sort of my family culture, my family background. Um, A lot of my uncles, like my mom's brothers, went to the University of Guelph. So we kind of have a bit of a family heritage. Um, around that institution and around farming and just sort of environmental protection as sort of a general, again, just kind of a family culture. So the fact that I do this work that I do is not in isolation of my culture and family upbringing. And th- and that's really what I wanted to kind of touch on a little bit. Interesting. So, Steve, can you just touch on that a little bit? Like, so we are your... Are your parents or were your grandparents farmers or, or can you talk a little bit more about that piece? Like wh- like why that played such a big impact for you? Yeah, like I say, back when I was growing up, the environmental movement was really just getting started and it, it left a pretty significant impression on me as, as, a, as a youth, right, as a boy growing up. And my grandparents were farmers and I spent a lot of time 
on their farm because my parents' family home was just right close by. Um, so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my cousins and my other aunts and uncles, etc. So that was, again, a very significant part of my family culture and upbringing was protecting the land, protecting the environment, growing food, um, right? Like th that whole um, rural culture was very much part of my my ideological upbringing and left a large imprint on me. So like I said, by the time I grew up, uh, finishing up high school, uh, again, it was just one of those things where, where like, where, where do I go from here? Like, it never occurred to me to, you know, you know, say work at a bank or, <laughs> right, like, or, or, or do like other normal jobs. It was like, well, what can I do in like um, environmental protection or farming or, you know, like, like, how, how do I do this for a living? And like I say, there just there wasn't enough farmland to go around for everybody. So it's like, well, I'm gonna go on and just do something else. <laughs> cool. Well, that's great. That's awesome. So so you so you studied that, and then um, you know to to kind of where you are today. Can you kind of lead us through some of the various positions maybe that you've held, or or just sure. your kind of career steps in general? Sure, sure. So like I say, I, I did my uh, my undergraduate studies at uh, Guelph University in environmental engineering. And again, it's probably important, again, like I sort of mentioned a moment ago, much of my career, as, as, you're, as you'll see as we go through, tended to be very ideologically driven, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I work with purpose. I, I don't just work for for money, right? Like like I'm very purpose driven in my work. And, and that matters to me actually more than anything else. I, I will not work for something that I fundamentally don't believe in. Um, so like I say, when I first started back in the late 90s into the early 2000s, there really was no such thing as renewable energy back then that we that we would recognize it today. Um, so, you know, I, I got working on some projects early on in the consulting industry, and that's really where I started. And spent actually 12 years working for different firms in the uh, consulting engineering industry, primarily focused on air pollution control and environmental protection. That was always my focus. And I even changed jobs a couple of times just to try to expand my repertoire of, of knowledge and experience where some companies maybe were a bit limiting or I, you know, maybe I, I felt that I was gonna do all I was gonna do there and there was really not a lot for me to learn and I wanted to move on and just learn something new. So I would change jobs, change companies, and just take on new challenges to expand my portfolio of projects and knowledge. So like I say, I worked for a series of different companies. And um, about, what was it? Oh my God, 11, 12 years ago now, back, I, I actually lost my job in the recession in 2009, like, like okay. a lot of people did. Wow. So the, the recession in 2008, 2009 was really hard on the engineering community. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us in the consulting industry lost our positions, um, through no fault of our own, right? Like it was just an economic downturn, despite the fact that we were, you know, very bright, hardworking people, etc. Um, so it was at that time that one of my colleagues who, who also lost his job. So he was out looking for a job too. He sent me the job advertisement um, for the Ministry of Environment to do renewable energy. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Well, what's what's this about? Let's take a look. You know what I mean? And I thought, oh, geez, like this job advertisement really aligns quite well with a lot of my 
interests and experiences mm. and my worldview, right? Like just my, my fundamental worldview around how we should run the energy sector. We should mm. have more renewable energy just anyway. And I wasn't really sure how the government was going to do it. But I thought, hey, if there's an opportunity to go work there and figure it out and contribute in some, you know, material way, then, you know, maybe that's something I, I would be good at. And maybe I could help. So I did. I sent in a resume. I got called for an interview and I got hired within 15 minutes. I kid you not. Wow. Like, like I went awesome. to the interview and they're like, wow, buddy, like you're our guy. You, you are just <laughs> really into this in a way that the other candidates that we've seen are just not quite so motivated um, to do renewable energy the way that we see that you are. So would you please come work for us? <laughs> Wow. And I was like, wow, I think that would be amazing. I would really like to have this opportunity. So that was in 2010, technically, that 2010 that I got hired. Um, so I've been a full-time permanent employee, um, you know, for a little over 10 years now in pr the provincial government. But again, I, I don't really want to, like I say, get into that too much. Yeah, yeah. Because that's there's there's confidentiality issues and sure. and other, again, ethics issues there that I don't really want to broach here today. So anyway, long story short, I worked in government and and still do um but i also wanted to again focus a little bit more on i was um introduced to a gentleman a few years ago back around 2018 in resilient world and he had been looking for a professional engineer instructor type person to develop and teach a course specifically on renewable energy and he couldn't find anyone um so when we were introduced at an event he just kind of freaked out. He's like, oh my goodness, like you're, you're my guy. Like almost the same reaction that I had with my interview in the government 10 years, you know, whatever before. It was like, would you please come design a course and teach a course on renewable energy? Like I can't find anybody that that is competent and capable to do this. And there's such a need in the market for this kind of information to be taught. Um, and uh, so I I went through a, um, a uh, exercise again with with the government to make sure that everything would be cleared again through the ethics committee etc and so we did that exercise again filled out the paperwork and told them what i was trying to do and and they were agreeable that this as long as you weren't you know consulting on projects or helping people do business with the government mm. right like i had to be fully arm's length your job is to teach, <laughs> not work on projects. Stephen, what I don't, I don't, I'm not very familiar with the Resilient World Institute. Like, and I've been working for 40 years, and, I, and I, I'm not very familiar with them. Can you tell me more about this organization for us? Yeah, the the organization really was obviously began, you know, before I got there, and yeah. their focus really is more on buildings and. Okay thermal efficiency modeling and energy modeling of like mm -hmm. office buildings and condominiums mm -hmm. and this kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And, and I'll be honest, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Martin. Like I've spent mm -hmm. most of my career working on utility and industrial projects. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, this is so a bit... interacting with people doing green buildings and condos and office <laughs> buildings and this kind of stuff, like this is kind of new for me. Yeah. Um, and, so, but I'm, but I'm at the same time, I'm, I'm having fun with it mm, because, awesome. because I've, I've learned over the years that when people work on small projects, it's really hard for them to step up to work on big projects. But people like us that are used to working on big projects, it's actually not that hard mm. to just kind of shrink everything down and, and work on it at a smaller scale. So what do you teach? What do you teach for them with respect to buildings and renewable energy? I'd I'd love to hear about what it is that you teach, Stephen. 
Well, like I say, I, I don't really teach a lot about buildings per oh, okay. se. Okay. But what I'm saying is that's that's the kind of the, the general thrust uh -huh. of that company okay. is to teach courses about energy modeling for buildings. Yeah. Um, but just like a lot of other people that I've encountered, like some of my now former students have actually come and taken my course that are green architects and like lead certified okay. type people. Oh. Because, you know, they're used to working on green buildings and they're, they've never really worked on energy projects. Mm. And the, the thing that I get from them is, you know, we're really good at putting in fancy windows and LED lighting and, you know what I mean? Like some of, some of the more traditional stuff that you would associate with buildings. Mm. But when it comes time to figuring out how to do like beyond that, like how do we mm. incorporate renewable energy in buildings? Like, yeah there's not a lot out there and this is what i've learned like the the green architects and the lead certified folks they're very interested in gathering more knowledge on renewable energy and even more recently now i've been doing a lot of more stuff on energy storage yeah uh, interesting uh, because i mean energy storage is also part of the industrial and utility industry that i'm more uh, typically familiar and associated with but like I say, the green architects and the green building people now are really starting to ask a lot of questions and try to figure out, like, how do we reduce our carbon footprint further? And I'm sure you've heard there's a major emphasis now and thrust on this whole concept of net zero by 2050. Yep. Yep. And and trust me, there is no playbook or silver bullet to get us nope. to net zero by 2050. Right. Yeah. So a lot of people are starting to freak out, mm -hmm. like, how on earth are we going to do this? Um, yep. So, yep. so like I say, people are coming to take my course that are not energy people. Mm -hmm. They're they they work in other industries where it's like somebody is asking them, "What mm -hmm. about renewable energy? What about energy storage?" And they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say to yeah. their clients or their boss or whoever is asking mm -hmm. them these questions. So they're scrambling around online looking for a course to take where they can get some, you know, some, some quick and easy knowledge on this. Mm. Mm. And so, like I say, my course is really designed to be a one day user friendly course for people that are not technical specialists. Over the last little while, I, I've really been cautious around how I, how I fashion my course notes. And, and again, <laughs> I, I've really started to make it a lot more accessible and user-friendly to a, to a non-technical crowd because that's just who's signing up. It's, it's very non-technical people that do not have a strong background in renewable energy or energy storage. But again, their boss is asking them questions or their clients are asking them questions and they're just scrambling to try to figure out, well, now what do I do? I don't know. I, I'm not an expert in this. How do I, how do I get more information on this quickly? <laughs> right. So they come and take my course. It's one day in, out. You get a great pile of notes and a lot of helpful information, and then off you go. That's great. Oh, that's great. It's good, great to, that you're doing that, Stephen. And, and like you said, there's a lot of education that needs to be uh, kind of put out there for, for those types of people. So that's awesome. Um, Martin has told me that uh, you have achieved quite a bit in your career, and I'm wondering if you might be able to, before we get into kind of the meat of the podcast, Talk a little bit about some of those highlights or notable achievements that uh, that you've made over the last how many years? You know, five, ten years, perhaps. Yeah. Well, well, like I say, one one of the challenges around there is again a lot of those, um, you know, 
I would say maybe highlight projects have largely been done in my government role. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so again, I, I can't really, again, get into a lot of details. But what I can say is if you look up um, the ERO postings mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. guideline A14 for wood combustion boilers and energy systems from uh, January 2017, mm-hmm. or for example, even just recently, the ERO posting for guideline A5 for mm-hmm. stationary combustion turbines. Fantastic. Yep. You you will see my name listed at the bottom as the contact. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll just sort of put that out there that when you see my name listed as the contact, that means I was the principal author of, of that work. So so maybe we will we'll kind of maybe you can talk a little bit about the guidelines if you can. Um, but in yep. addition to that, there, those guidelines in some ways differentiate Ontario from other provinces. And I guess as a second part to that, um, the guidelines, presumably, I mean, may, maybe in your opinion, you could kind of focus on, you know, h- how do you think that uh, helps develop renewable energy projects in Ontario? Like, is that all linked to these guidelines that yeah. uh, that have been created? Yeah. And, and it's funny because a lot of people think that government regulations, you know, are um, – really bad for for industry or you know what have you these kinds of things but people like martin and i know better that mm-hmm. if you actually don't have well written government regulations it actually makes building projects worse or or more difficult mm-hmm. rather than having modern technically proficient guidelines and regulations actually makes it easier mm-hmm. to build projects with new innovative technology Mm-hmm. Um, so well, that's, the way that that's it, so interesting to me, Stephen, because I'm working on some biomass projects with CEM across Canada, and it's amazing. Like, it, if the projects were in Ontario, we'd know exactly what to do uh, because of A13 and A14. But in other provinces, <laughs> we just don't have that clarity. We we'd like, do we? How much back end equipment do we put in? You know, like like what do we really need to to do the right thing for the environment? We so, don't know in some of the other provinces, but here we do, and that's huge, huge. Yeah. So, I think this might be a really good time, Stephen. Can you just describe what do each of those guidelines do? Like, what are they all about? For our listeners who are maybe not familiar with what those those letters and numbers stand for, can you describe what those guidelines are? Sure, sure, yeah. And and again, this is this is public domain, so there, there's really no issue here. So in mm-hmm. Ontario, we regulate energy projects that use combustion systems, primarily with what's called environmental compliance approvals, or ECA. This is a pretty common, um, you know, term for for people that are in the industry. Now, and, and again, to be honest, this is actually also typical of other provinces, right? Like to get a, a permit, you have to submit an application to the government, and then the government gives you a permit so that you can build and operate your boiler or your gas turbine or whatever it is that you're trying to do. The tricky part is is if is if there's not like current relevant technical guidance um again written all, like by engineers for engineers <laughs> for lack of a better term um so yeah. again martin knows this all too well that when you are and, and again i know this too from from talking to colleagues again across mm-hmm. the country mm-hmm. that they are um actually very envious when they look at the suite of technical guidance that Ontario has and it's actually very common if you do what's called a jurisdiction review or a JR Absolutely. in our yep. know, kind of 
kind of kind of vernacular. <laughs> when you do a jurisdiction review of Canadian provinces, it's actually pretty common to see in other Canadian provinces simply references to Ontario's mm-hmm. guidelines yep. or regulations because it's like yep. you know a lot of Canadian provinces are are fairly small. They don't have a lot of resources. And their ideology is if it's good enough for Ontario, it's good enough for us. So I often will kind of jokingly say to people like uh, Ontario effectively is to Canada what California is to the United States in terms of modern environmental guidelines and regulations, right? Like in the States, California is just the biggest province or sorry, the biggest state you know, with the most resources and et cetera, you know, so California is very aggressive in writing guidelines and regulations and rules and technical documents for all their, you know, projects and technologies and all this kind of business. And then oftentimes other U.S. states will simply say, hey, if it's good enough for California, it's good enough for us. And they simply Mm -hmm. adopt the California rule into their state program. Because again, much like America, Canada is very decentralized in terms of its regulatory authority. So environmental regulations actually rest at the subnational level, meaning province in Canada or state level in America. Mm -hmm. So there's often not a lot of federal rules developed. Mm -hmm. Now, what often we do have is very high level federal rules or guidelines created that are sort of like the minimum Mm. expectation. And then the states or provinces are then sort of expected to adopt in their own regulatory framework that federal rule or guideline. Um, The challenge is, is that if the state or province, again, is small, has a maybe a small population, and maybe not like a lot of engineers working in the government's departments on mm. rule making. Again, they may just simply lack the technical expertise to even adopt the federal rules, even though they're supposed to, they, they don't know how. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I say, in Ontario, we're, we're very blessed to have, again, a little bit richer uh, province with more resources that we can adopt those federal rules more quickly and proficiently. So again, once the other provinces see what Ontario's done, they're like, oh, that's w- what we're supposed to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we hey, see Steve, how I- what Ontario's done. They've adopted the federal rule or the federal guideline or whatever it is. And now we know what we're supposed to do. Okay, now we're just going to copy Ontario. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Steve, what I'm, what I'm intrigued with is, um, you know, if I think back to what you know the research i've done on the international energy agency website about the biomass resource in different countries in the world canada is number one or number two uh, in terms of biomass resource and then i think about your comments about uh, what you're teaching at the resilient world institute um, and i think back to all the trips i've made to germany and how many houses there are heated with wood pellets Uh, you know what's holding ontario um, and canada back from from implementing more renewable energy given that we have this vast biomass resource uh, well it's 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 funny because canada actually exports over 90 percent of its wood pellet manufacturing oh no that's wow. horrible really over 90 percent of our manufactured wood pellets in canada are exported to europe and asia 
our, our, our domestic market is actually very, very small. And sorry, Stephen, is that coming from BC primarily or where, what province is it coming from primarily? Primarily from BC. Yeah. They, mm -hmm. they have the largest wood pellet industry in Canada. Um, but other provinces do have smaller niche markets um, in manufacturing capabilities like down east in New Brunswick in Nova Scotia, uh, Quebec, right? Like there's there's wood pellet manufacturing, you know, in, in many, many provinces um, in Canada. But to be honest with you, one of the one of the challenges that I've seen is that historically in Canada, we again, like I said a moment ago, because we historically have not had robust engineering guidelines and standards for the combustion of wood in energy devices. Mm -hmm. um, we've often had this, again, this legacy of pollution and, and wood combustion devices being seen as a, as a public nuisance. Yeah, right. Um, because of the smoke, etc. Yeah. Um, so, so like I say, there there was always this this attitude in Canada that these wood combustion devices are just a nuisance and we should get rid of them. Um, you know, we have other better options. We can use natural gas or propane or fuel oil, which we also have an abundance in Canada is fossil fuel energy. Yeah, right. And it's often been very cheap uh, historically to use fossil fuel energy in Canada. So, so, you know, kind of how it went over the last number of decades was, well, let's just use these fossil fuel energy systems because they're cleaner burning and cheap. Mm. Um, and these wood devices will just sort of make life difficult for them and, and try to get rid of them. So that's, mm. I mean, for better or for worse, I mean, that was just kind of how it went over the last number of decades. Um, now, in contrast, because Europe does not have a substantial domestic supply of fossil fuels like natural right, right. gas, it often largely is imported from other outside jurisdictions. Um, whereas Europe does have also like Canada, a tremendous biomass and forest resource. Mm -hmm. So the prevailing attitudes and thinking there was, well, let's just figure out how to burn these wood pellets or wood chips or what have you cleanly rather mm. than try to get rid of them and and use fossil fuels well fossil fuels in europe are you know can be a hard a hard bargain in terms of pricing and availability etc and um so like i say their attitude was well let's just figure out how to burn these biomass fuels without making air pollution like like why not let's just do that <laughs> are you hopeful um, for the future Stephen? have a lot of other better options so, like I say, that's one of the reasons why Europe now has a whole new generation of technologies that are very clean burning, yeah. very, very efficient, yeah. um, that, that we're just now starting to adopt new regulations into Canada that reflects those modern best-in-class equipment standards, mm -hmm. um, et cetera, like we've now done here in Ontario with our guideline A14, for example, you know, we referenced the European boiler standard. We referenced yeah. the ISO fuel standards for wood pellets and wood chips, etc. So again, we've really modeled our new prevailing uh, regulatory structures off the European model because it's so successful. Yes. I mean, the indeed. number of wood, like you said, the number of wood heating devices and combined heat and power for that matter mm -hmm. in Europe is just fantastic. It is. It's and, and it's almost yep. unknown in Canada by, by yep. comparison. Yeah. So what needs to, like, if, if, if Europe has done such a great job cleaning up, 
you know, the the combustion of biomass. And, you know, you, you referenced earlier the fact that, you know, here we think it's a bit of a dirty fuel. Is it the perception that needs to change? Like what needs to, obviously these guidelines have now been put in place, which is going to help. But is the does the perception need to change to get more adoption of biomass here in Canada? Or what what's your thought process there? Um, well, like I say, th- there's a couple of things. W- one of the things that I did not fully appreciate when I first started down this road a few years ago was the level of involvement of the um, MNR um, here in Ontario and their work in sustainable forest management. Mm-hmm. Mm. There is an enormous amount of time and money and effort spent in Ontario in sustainably managing our crown forests. Mm-hmm. And in Southern Ontario, because we really don't have crown forests here in Southern Ontario, you know, oftentimes here, like especially, you know, in the GTA, et cetera, you know, when, when trees are cut down, people really, really get upset because generally speaking, when trees get cut down in Southern Ontario, they don't grow back. It, right. Like that land is paved over and we've now lost that forested land. So people are very oftentimes you know confused around the use of biomass because again in southern ontario the use of biomass is often linked to deforestation whereas in northern ontario the use of biomass is very much part of sustainable forest management yeah where when you cut the tree down you have to grow another one back in its place Mm -hmm. you don't pave over the land you you keep it in forest so again, there, there's a there's a cultural issue and an education issue at play here, um, and I definitely touch on that in my course because mm-hmm. this information is not widely known or understood, especially again in the southern part of Ontario and especially in Toronto, where the people live that write the government rules. <laughs> yeah, right. They're primarily based in Toronto. So yeah, when that's... when you talk about sustainable forestry, Stephen. Like there's, there's a, there are many of our listeners that don't really understand what that means. So when we're thinking about biomass and, and people are protective of trees and they want to understand what this looks like, is it literally the tree gets chopped down and you're planting a new one in its place? Like what does, how do you define sustainable forestry? How do we make sure that we're not affecting our forests long-term so that we can burn that fuel and feel good about burning that fuel, so to speak? Right. Well, like I say, All those um, government regulations are available online through the Ontario Ministry Natural Resources and Forestry. Um, So like I say, I would encourage folks to Google the, um, again, the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry website. Look for information on sustainable forest management and crown forest management because you will find it because it's there. Because I know it's there because I had to learn about it myself. Mm. Um, when I first, cause again, like I say, my original concept here was just helping to fix up the, um, rules around combustion boilers. I mean, that was really all I was really concerned about, but as, as, as this evolved and as it went on again, like I say, there's, there, there's a lot of linkages with the ministry of, uh, energy and like Northern development, what's called the ENDM ministry and, uh, OMAFRA because um, greenhouses and a lot of other agricultural institutions Mm -hmm. use biomass energy for their uh, crop productions in greenhouses and um, you know the MNR and MECP so there's a lot of moving parts 
around this. And again, one of the key challenges was was again getting getting out in front of that narrative that in Ontario we have sustainable forest management that is the delegated authority of the Ontario MNRF. Mm. So and, it's and it's it, not quite as simple as there's a it sounds like there's a lot more to it. It's not quite as simple as you cut down a tree, you plant a new one in its place and that's sustainable forestry. There's a lot more it sounds like around that, right? Yeah. So so again, when you when you look at other broader initiatives around things like net zero or the circular economy, zero mm-hmm. waste, yep, you know, yep. diverting waste from landfill, because you may be shocked to learn actually how much perfectly clean wood fiber is actually put into landfills yes. every, every yes. year. Yes. Horrible. It's, yep. it's shocking, actually. Yeah. Yep, how much yep. how much clean wood that could otherwise have been diverted into an energy boiler is simply just wasted in a landfill. And also when regards to um, our logging practices in the north on, on crown forested lands, a lot of the non-merchantable fiber is simply bundled up and burned at the side of the road and not recovered for energy purposes. So, so, so again, when it comes to logging practices and resource yeah. recovery and a lot of these issues, so that's what I say. There's a lot of moving parts around jurisdictional authority and who's responsible for what in terms of getting, you know, kind of getting everybody's heads together to make this work. So, Stephen, we at CEM take our, our role as helping our energy intensive customers and our CO2 intensive customers. We love serving them, helping them achieve their goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see biomass as, as a big, huge play going forward. Uh, yep. Do you have any advice for us at CEM in terms of serving our clients well, in terms of how to, how to encourage them uh, to deploy more renewable energy, especially now with you know what the signals coming out of Ottawa, carbon tax? Um, would you have any advice for us? How can we serve our customers better so that we can get more European-like uh, deployment of, of of especially biomass, but also renewable general energy in general. Do you have any advice for us? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a few um, key trends. I would say what we would call macro trends happening um, okay. that that really play into this discussion. So one of the ones that we had to wrap our heads around here in Ontario, especially with wood biomass energy boilers, like we're talking is this pretty radical transformation around shifting away from what we would historically have called wood waste, uh-huh. right? Like historically, anybody that burned wood in an energy boiler was considered to be burning waste. Yeah. And when you burn waste, there's a lot of implications right. around right. that, that makes right. it challenging because when you're burning waste, there's other rules that kick in. Um, and rightfully so, because when you, when people burn waste, it, it can be very, you know, problematic for environmental pollution, et cetera. So what the Europeans did, I mean, I'm talking decades ago, mm-hmm. was start developing wood biomass fuel quality standards. Yeah. And those have since been elevated up to the ISO. Mm-hmm. So we now have global standards for wood fuel quality when burned in a combustion or energy type system. Yeah. And we have adopted those ISO standards into Ontario back in 2017 with our guideline A14, et cetera, you yeah. know, for our small wood combustion, you know, European style boilers. So again, but again, this, this can apply anywhere, you know, not just with the small energy boilers. I mean, this can apply to any um, industrial scale 
system of, of many different types or sizes. Mm -hmm. It's really about quality control of the feedstock. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. when you have something like wood waste, you know, kind of the, like the, the anecdote that I provide is when you have a fuel delivery and you really don't know what's going to come off the back of that truck, when yeah. they, when they dump the load of fuel in your fuel bunker, mm -hmm. that's not good. Right. Right. Like you right. need to have confidence when that truck shows up and they yeah. offload those chips yeah. or they offload those pellets, you yeah. know exactly what you're getting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's really what those ISO standards, which, which by the way, have been adopted through CSA. So they are formerly uh, now uh, like Canadian standards as well. Yeah. So yeah. the CSA yeah. has formally adopted the ISO standards for use in Canada. Mm. And so, like I say, by upgrading the wood material to mm. an ISO graded fuel, it now becomes a commodity that you can buy and sell with confidence that you know what you're, pardon me, going to get when that truck shows up. <laughs> yeah, you're right, right. And, and, and when, you, when you write that check and you pay for that load of fuel, again, you have confidence that it's going to be the right size, the right moisture content, the right calorific value, the right ash content, like all the chemical and physical properties. Again, because I often joke with people, you wouldn't drive your car to a gas station that had no labels on the gas pumps. Right. And you right. really had no idea what kind of gas you were putting in your car. Right. Is it premium? Is it diesel? Is it is it 87 octane? I don't know. It's gas. Just put it in the car and go. Right. Like <laughs> you would never be able to get away with that with any other kind of fuel. Yeah. And so now we're bringing the discipline of standards like we have for many decades in fossil fuels mm. also to woody biomass. Mm. And that is a major radical rethink in how we do this right. because if it's ISO graded, mm. you can move it out of that waste category into a fuel category. Right. It's now a fuel that I am burning in my boiler that meets quality specifications. Yeah. This is not really waste anymore because waste, you don't really know what it is, but I know what my fuel is because I force my fuel supplier to comply with this standard or they don't get paid. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So that's been a major rethink. Mm. Um, again, using that kind of European model around quality of biomass mm. and then the other big one that i'm seeing a lot of interest in in these days again is energy storage and what a lot of folks may not realize is that here in ontario it's 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 kind of a tale of two cities because sometimes you'll hear people say that we have too much power mm. and then you have other people say well then why do we have these gas turbine plants running all the time mm. And so one of the challenges is when you dig a little deeper into how our electricity system operates in Ontario, what you'll find is that we actually have a lot of low carbon baseload energy, nuclear, hydro, to a degree, wind and solar. Um, but of course, wind and solar are a little bit intermittent. They're not really baseload quite in the same way. Um, but anyway, long story short, we curtail wind energy in this province to a fairly substantial quantity. Mm -hmm. And we also export low carbon baseload out of province, primarily at nighttime. Right. Mm -hmm. So we actually have a lot 
of available low carbon clean energy in Ontario that's not being optimally consumed. Mm-hmm, right. So by incorporating energy storage, we could capture more of that green energy and mm-hmm. reduce our carbon footprints. And that's really where I'm seeing the buildings people popping yeah, up. Yeah, right, that right. They want to get rid of their diesel generators anyway, because they just hate them. Yeah. And so now there's a lot of chatter around putting things like maybe hydrogen fuel cells mm. or stationary lithium ion batteries, like these big Tesla Powerwall type things yep. in buildings so that you can capture the low carbon off peak power at night and deploy the low carbon energy during the day, thereby reducing the demand for gas peaking plants during the day. Mm. Because, of course, just like any modern industrial society, we have a very significant shift between daytime consumption patterns and nighttime consumption patterns. Mm -hmm. So at nighttime, our energy demand is low. During the day, it's high. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty easy math in that regard. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So so like I say, if you want to run gas plants less, will then capture the energy at night from nuclear and hydro and wind (laughs) and then deploy the energy during the day. I mean, the math is actually pretty simple, but I'm saying actually executing on that kind of a broad based, I'm talking, you know, really economy wide kind of a platform. It is challenging because it's going to be very capital intensive to to deploy these kinds of radical changes in technology um, but ultimately, that's where I see us going. Interesting. Rather than yeah. just simply building more, right? No. Like, le- like let's integrate and and optimize the energy infrastructure that we've already built. Yep, indeed. Right. Or before we start building more, like wind oh. and solar, etc. But in terms of biomass, because it's primarily heat driven, I mean, mm-hmm. really, when you look at biomass energy, like the electrical conversion efficiency is not terribly high compared to other types of electrical generation. So with biomass, it really has to be a heat driven project. And the electrical generation like through CHP is really just a bonus. Right. Right. Exactly. But if you don't have a 24 seven demand for heat, then biomass energy is, is really challenging to make work economically. Indeed. Well, this has been great, Stephen. I really appreciate uh, you know the details you've been you provided us. I think uh, we're all the more wiser, including hopefully our listeners as well. Um, just as we're kind of coming to a close, if people wanted to get in touch with you, whether to uh, you know learn maybe more about biomass or just uh, maybe even to get some more information about your course that you uh, that you teach at Resilient World Institute, what's the best way that they can get in touch with you? Just connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. Cool. Okay, that's and that's and that's Stephen Law, so that's S T E V E N Law. All right, well, thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on as a guest to Energy Radio. Hopefully, you had fun, and uh, yeah, looking forward to more discussions with you. Great, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Stephen. Most welcome. Thanks, Stephen. <laughs>